Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Professor Jeff Harden is so amazing that not only can he read scripture, but he can also hand out copies of sermon manuscripts. Wow. I wanted to flag that just because there's a lot of visitors here today, and it's our habit to help you follow the sermon by handing out manuscripts, especially if English is your second or third or fourth language. Maybe that will help you. So get Jeff's attention as he goes by if you want a copy so you can follow along now or review later. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, what do you think this passage is about? Probably the first thing that comes to your mind is the law. Jesus makes a very powerful and authoritative statement about the law, the first of about 30 sayings in the Gospel of Matthew that start with Jesus saying, truly I tell you, or in some other translations, amen, I say to you. That's kind of Jesus' signature line. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a very strong focus on the law. As the passage goes on, it seems to stay focused on obedience to the law. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Still focused on the law. But then there's a change of focus in the last verse, verse 20. Suddenly, Jesus shifts from third-person speech about those who do or don't keep the law, and he speaks directly to his audience in second-person speech, you language. And if the Sermon on the Mount were on video, Jesus would probably look right into the camera when he says, for I tell you that whoever... I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this passage isn't just about the law. It's about us. It's about you and me and what we're going to do about the law. But this passage has one more focus point, and it's probably the most important one. Take the probably away. It is the most important one. Not the speech or the topic, 
not the audience, but the speaker. In this passage, Jesus also says something important about himself. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And the most important phrase in the whole passage is the one you might go right past if you're not paying attention. I have come. So let me remind you, let's remember together how the, passage, how, how the gospel of Matthew starts, how it got us to where we are right now. In Matthew 1, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the heir to the great promises God made to Abraham, which we studied last fall, and to David, which you probably know about, the promise that one of David's sons would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And not only that, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, and all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not just a name, but a reality in Jesus' case. In chapter 2, we learn that Jesus is indeed the King of Israel and the light of the nations. And this is attested by signs in the heavens. In chapter 3, Jesus' identity is confirmed as the Son of God when the Father himself speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son. And then in chapter 4, the devil challenges that identity. If you are the Son of God, and Jesus confirms his, his right to be the Son of God, his, his identity as the Son of God by overcoming the devil, and when he does that, the angels come and wait on him. So this is the way Matthew is presenting Jesus to us. And then, right before the Sermon on the Mount, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is the king, and it is his coming that brings the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when Jesus sits down to speak these words that we're studying in the Sermon on the Mount, it is God himself in the midst of the people of God speaking to them. God once again giving the law to his people. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So this passage actually focuses on three things. Jesus, the law, and us. We need to keep those things connected. And I'll try to do that as I explore the three questions that this passage raises to my mind as I read it. First, what does Jesus mean when he talks about fulfillment? Second, why would anyone think that Jesus came to abolish the law? And third, what does Jesus mean when he talks about a righteousness that is greater than the rigorous righteousness of the scribes, the, the theology professors? Those aren't just copyists. Those are PhDs of their time, scribes and Pharisees, sort of like the professors and the professional clergy. So that's the outline for the rest of this sermon. What does it mean to fulfill the law? Why would anyone think that Jesus would abolish the law? And what does a greater righteousness look like? What does Jesus mean by fulfill? 
The most common way that the Bible uses the word fulfill is in the sense of fulfilling a prophecy. You've already heard that a couple times this morning. Matthew uses the word fulfill more than any other writer in the New Testament. And he almost always uses it in that sense of fulfilling a prophecy. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Matthew loves to say that. But the law doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments or even all of the commandments, however many there were. The rabbis in the third century said there were 613 commandments. But it doesn't just mean the commandments, it means the books. Torah means law, but it also means the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books contain a lot of prophecies about the Messiah. Maybe one of the most important ones is in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says to the people before, when he's about to die and they're about to go into the promised land, he says, the Lord will send a prophet like me to you. And that's why so many times when when people were wondering who Jesus is, they said, "Are, are, are you the prophet? That's what they're talking about. So Jesus could be talking about the fulfillment of the Torah in that prophetic sense. There's a second way, similar but perhaps deeper, in which the New Testament talks about fulfillment. The books of the Torah and other books of the Bible describe people and things and events and practices that foreshadow much greater things to come. The tabernacle, the altar, the bread of the presence, the sacrifices and the ceremonies of Israel. All of those things were real and important, but they were also important in a greater sense because they pointed to greater realities, and these all find their fulfillment in Jesus. So when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill, he could also be talking about fulfilling the law in that sense of being the greater reality that the law pointed to. As John puts it in chapter 1 of his gospel, his magnificent prologue. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. The reality that the law pointed to came through Jesus Christ. And there's one more way that the New Testament, and particularly Jesus, talks about fulfillment. If you bring something to its fullest expression, to its highest possible degree of perfection, so that it becomes everything it was designed to be, everything it was created to be, everything God intended it to be, that is fulfillment. Jesus used the word fulfill in that way, for example, when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John said, wait a minute, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. And Jesus said, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And when we hear Jesus say, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we probably naturally and probably rightly think of fulfillment mainly in that third way, bringing the law to its fullest, deepest expression, to put it into practice the way God intended it to be put into practice. And that certainly makes sense in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which we are studying, because Jesus is explaining and preparing to go through a whole series of what you might call midrashes, studies on the law in the rest of chapter 5, in which he explains to us the kind of righteousness 
that God actually intended the law to produce in people. For example, the next one we're going to come to next week. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you're even angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. That could be stop here. That's homework. (laughs) Go to it. But there's more to it, okay? But anyway, the point is, this is bringing out the fullest, deepest meaning of the law. And you can't really separate any one of these senses of fulfillment from the other ones. Jesus isn't just a commentator on the law. He's the source of the law. In a sense, he is the law, and the law is him. You could say, like like John says, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus is the law made flesh. In fact, you could say it even more stronger. You could not only say that his character is a perfect expression and embodiment of the law, but you could also say that the law is a perfect expression of his character because he is the source of the law. Given that, why would anyone think or even imagine that Jesus came to abolish the law? I think there may be two ways in which people misunderstood Jesus and continue to misunderstand Jesus and his relationship to the law and his teaching about the law. Or maybe two kinds of people who tend to think in that misguided way. And it's a response to what Jesus did and what Jesus taught, but it's a misunderstanding. Jesus welcomed sinners. Jesus spent time with unlovable people like tax collectors and prostitutes. And he didn't just spend time with people like that. He sat down and ate with them, which in the custom of the time meant that he dipped his hand and his bread into the common dish with them. He not only healed lepers, but he put his hands on lepers when he healed them. So Jesus, in the eyes of the Pharisees, wasn't very, very careful about ceremonially unclean, ceremonial uncleanness. And we all know that God hates ceremonial uncleanness about, above everything. I don't want to parody that. But that's what Jesus might call one of the lesser matters of the law. And you can focus on those without remembering what the greater intent of the law is. Jesus fell short in the eyes of the Pharisees. He neglected some traditional religious observances that the Pharisees thought were essential. He didn't make his disciples fast regularly. He didn't wash the outside of the cups he drank from, the parts a person would have to touch in order to eat from them. So one group that Jesus, that that probably thought Jesus came to minimize or even abolish the law were those conservative religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, the super religious. Now try to get inside their heads. The Pharisees were so conscientious about obeying the law, or at least the parts they they focused on, that they sort of put a fence around the law, like one step beyond. For example, the law didn't actually forbid hanging out with sinners or tax collectors. It didn't require the kind of cup washing that the Pharisees did, but here's how they thought. Some of those sinners might be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, or some unclean person might have handled these dishes I'm about to eat from. So just in case I might become unclean, I'll never even go near a sinner. 
Now always wash the outside of the dish I eat from. Otherwise, I might offend God by going into the temple in an unclean condition. And they never think that there might be greater ways of offending God. But that's how the Pharisees often thought and acted. And because Jesus didn't act that way and teach others to act the way they thought the people should act, the Pharisees thought Jesus was trying to do away with the law. And there were other things, perhaps more important things, like healing on the Sabbath that brought Jesus into conflict with the Pharisees about their interpretation of how you should keep the law. Jesus and the Pharisees had one thing in common. They each saw the other as a lawbreaker. We'll come back to the Pharisees, because we have to. It's in the last verse, very explicitly. But I don't think at the beginning of this passage, in verse 17, Jesus is actually worrying about the Pharisees. Jesus is engaging a different kind of person, a person who sees how gracious he is to sinners, how readily he extends forgiveness to them, and then they jump to the wrong conclusions. Jesus doesn't actually care about righteousness. God isn't actually all that interested in our obedience. One of the great legacies of of humanity is the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. And we have, uh, among other things, Catherine the Great's art collection. But we have another legacy from Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia. I don't know if you know much about Catherine. To say she was no saint is a bit of an understatement. But... Empress Catherine seemed to think that there would be no negative consequences for her lifestyle. She said something like this. She spoke French, like all the Russian nobility did, and I'll mostly translate this and translate it into English. But she said something like this. I'm going to keep on sinning, and God's going to keep on forgiving me, because forgiving is God's business. That's a famous quotation. Pardonnez. C'est son métier. Forgiving is God's line of work. Forgiving, that's just what God does for a living. We usually call that cheap grace. If you think Jesus is not interested in actual obedience, if you think Jesus is quite happy if we live however we want, and we can expect him to keep on forgiving us no matter what, then Jesus has a question. For anyone who thinks that way, it comes a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, but the the idea runs through the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? Why do you talk to me in that language of intimacy and not do what I tell you to do? That's probably the kind of person Jesus has in mind when he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. He's not defending himself against the Pharisees. He's warning the careless. Don't imagine that I've come to abolish the law. And that warning, as I said, really runs through the whole passage and through the whole Sermon on the Mount. And it comes to a climax in our passage this morning in that last verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of God. That's a very emphatic negative in the Greek. Ou-me. It's a double negative, which doesn't make it a positive in Greek. It makes it a stronger negative. And that's my last question. 
What does that greater righteousness then look like? Jesus says our righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What does that mean? I think the best way to try to figure that out is to look at what Jesus actually said, not just about the Pharisees, but to the Pharisees. There are many places in the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, where this happens, where the Pharisees and Jesus confront one another. There's one passage called the seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. And you can, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, but I'll just, I'll just read some excerpts. I'm not going to read all seven, but I'm going to give you a taste of the kind of things Jesus said directly to the Pharisees, perhaps in a last-ditch effort to change their minds. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Because you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You don't go in yourselves. And when others are going in, you actually stop them. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by their oath. It's bound by nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by their oath. I didn't say that right, but I hope you get the point. You can say, I swear by the sanctuary, and it means nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the sanctuary, then you have to keep your oath. You blind fools, says Jesus. Which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? Not valuable, sacred. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, and your other herbs of the garden. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides. One of the ringing sentences in the New Testament. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup. In other words, yourselves, so that the outside also may become clean. The spectacular result of this sort of willful misunderstanding of the law is that anyone who thinks this way ultimately misunderstands the will of God and the heart of God. Ultimately, something like this will happen. You'll see God's Son healing a sick person on the Sabbath, and everything in you will scream, Sabbath breaker! Except the Son of Man, Jesus, God in the flesh, is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. You hear Jesus say to someone, Child, your sins are forgiven. And instead of saying, praise the Lord, so are mine, you say, that's blasphemy. But the Son of Man, Emmanuel, God with us, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's good news, not outrageous news. Here's what I really want to say. Matthew didn't preserve these sayings of Jesus to the Pharisees because he wanted to bash the Pharisees. He preserved these sayings because Christians... 
can so easily slip into the same kind of bad religion and tragic misunderstandings of God's will. We Christians, like the Pharisees, can do such a bad job of living out the faith Jesus taught us that we fail to embody the ways of the kingdom of God. And not only that, but other people see it. And our hypocrisy keeps them out of the kingdom as well. And the word Christian becomes not just a description, but a kind of dismissive term. Oh, that's mighty Christian of you isn't a compliment anymore, is it? Not always, not everywhere. We Christians, like Pharisees, look for loopholes and convenient lies to make things easier for ourselves. And we find spiritual justification, even for things like murder and adultery. A fetus isn't really a person, and isn't it better for them to die if they're not wanted? My marriage isn't really a marriage, and wouldn't we all be better off if we just walked away from it? Some Christians say things like that, hardly getting the heart of God, I think. We Christians, like Pharisees, focus on the little things, like saying grace before meals, or making the sign of the cross, or going to church every Sunday, Confessing the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and we neglect the big things. And we think God sees things our way. I'm sorry all those children at our borders are getting taken from their parents and put in cages. But the law is the law, and our leaders are right to enforce those laws. Some Christians say things like that. But it doesn't really stack up very well against the law Jesus gives in this very same chapter, like Matthew 5, 42. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And there are no asterisks in the text. We Christians, like Pharisees, can focus on the outward appearances rather than the inward motivations. Inside is what Jesus cares about. He might ask you, what's on your menu. He might ask you what's in your wallet, but for sure he will ask you what's in your heart and what's coming out of your heart. And if you have the courage to listen to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you will quickly see, and if you stick with it, you will deeply learn that Jesus isn't going to let his followers get away with hypocrisy. He's not going to leave any room for loopholes and excuses or for merely outward obedience that doesn't flow from a changed heart. Doesn't mean we're earning our way into heaven if we keep the law, but it does mean we understand what God wants. He surely says to every person, come as you are but he never allows anyone to stay as they are. If you come to Jesus, you will be changed for the better. Jesus came to fulfill the law, among other things and among other ways, in us, in each of us and in his people together. He wants the ultimate fulfillment of the law. He wants the law to come to expression in exactly the way God intended it to be expressed. That comes when God's law, God's teaching, God's Torah, is willingly 
and faithfully put into practice by people who love God and who embrace God's will, not only as their guiding principle, but as their way of life, who actually do it and teach it by their words and their example. And really, that's what the church is all about. That's what we focus on when we baptize children. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in us, in our practice, in our lives, in our embodiment of Christ's character. That's where Jesus wants to take us. That's why Jesus came. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord God, that we not only pray with one another, but we pray with Jesus, our great high priest. We pray with the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray guided by the teaching, the Torah of Jesus. Teach us, Lord, to honor your name above all things. Please, Lord, bring about your kingdom, including through us. May your will be done here in this present age, in this world, as it is in heaven. We plead for your mercy for all of the ways in which we have failed to live up to this through our high priest Jesus. And we plead for the grace to please God, to please our Father in heaven by actually putting into practice the things that you have so graciously taught us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.